come to you now, Lord, and present ourselves to you as holy living sacrifices. And just say that we're here for you tonight, God. We've all come here to hear you and to hear your word. And we know that your word says that without divine communication, the people cast off restraint and perish, Lord. And so we want you to communicate with us here tonight, God. And so please prepare our hearts to hear from you. Lord, I pray that your word would sanctify us. We know that your word is truth, God, so sanctify us by your truth. And I pray that your word would not return to you void tonight, but that it would accomplish everything that you have sent it forth to accomplish that's pleasing in your sight. We ask these things, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, before you sit down, can you please say hello to a couple people? All right, come on in and grab a seat. And if you have your Bibles, grab your Bible. Open them up to Acts chapter 7. And just as a heads up, that's not going to be our primary text that we're taking a look at tonight. Our primary text is going to be in Joshua chapter 1. But I wanted to do some um, stage setting, if you will, some some backstory to to kind of give us an idea. Maybe some of us aren't familiar with the story of the children of Israel. I know that um, when I first really got into going to church, I would hear a lot of terminology sort of tossed around and different things said, and people would say things like the children of Israel, and I didn't know what they were talking about. I knew that there was a nation of Israel, and I knew that there was an Abraham and an Isaac and a Jacob, but I didn't necessarily know the whole backstory, right? And it took it took a couple of years, actually, of reading my Bible to kind of get clued into a, a lot of things. And so Joshua 1 really starts off, It's you can think of the book of Joshua as sort of a book of new beginnings, but there was a lot of things that, that had to happen before the children of Israel were ready to enter into the promises of God. And so as I was praying about the message tonight and and thinking about an introduction into that, I was going through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and looking at scriptures, and God had put it on my heart to really give a summary of the nation of Israel. And one of the cross-references that I came to was Acts chapter 7, and a lot of you guys are probably familiar with Acts 7, and it's Stephen's um, address to the Sanhedrin, and he really gives them the Holy Spirit cliff notes, if you will, of the nation of Israel. So Let's take a look at Acts chapter 7, and we're going to jump in there in verse 2, and we're going to cover quite a bit of Scripture just setting the stage. We're going to read all the way to verse 43, and so if you're into reading a lot of Scripture, tonight's your night. Um, Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And he said, Stephen is the he, brethren and fathers, listen. And so he's talking to the Sanhedrin. He's, he's been accused of blasphemy, and he's, and he's set in this council, and there's all of these, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders that are, that are really looking at him, and they're going to judge him of, of whether or not he's actual guilty, actually guilty of blasphemy. And so he tells the Sanhedrin, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. 
So then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell, he being God. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for, for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, this foreign land being Egypt, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place, talking about the promised land. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And so if you've ever heard people talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs, this is what they're talking about, right? And the, the name Israel comes from God changed Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis twenty two twenty eight When he wrestled with God, the angel of the Lord changed his name and said, you shall be called Israel, right? And so that's where we get the children of Israel. All of the children of Israel are really the descendants of Jacob, right? Verse 9, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph, one of the patriarchs, into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And so that's how the children of Israel get down to Egypt. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months." But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian." For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. 
And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ to come. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. So after their deliverance out of Egypt, as, as most of you guys know, they didn't do well in the wilderness. And we're going to take a, a further look at that here in a second. Saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Ramphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And so we get this, really this summary of what's been going on for over 400 years, right? And, and by the way, the children of Israel getting delivered out of the land of Egypt is, is a type or a foreshadowing, really, of the salvation that God provides for each one of us, right? And so Egypt is a picture of the world, and, and we're all in bondage in the world to the enemy, Satan, right? And Satan... Pharaoh is a type of Satan, right? And so as God delivers each one of us in our own personal lives, what that's a picture of is us coming out of the world and, and out of Egypt, right? And what we see with the children of Israel is that God delivered them out of Egypt, and immediately what took place was they had a wilderness experience. And that's incredibly important to understand that if we find ourselves in a wilderness experience, especially for a new believer, I feel like it can be easy to do injustice to a lot of people that, that just give their lives to Christ and that just come into a walk with the Lord um, by, by having them or, or implying that once we give our lives to the Lord, then everything is just going to be rainbows and unicorns and, and a big dump truck's going to back into our yard and dump out a whole host of, of blessings, and we're going to be wealthy and healthy, and nothing's ever going to go wrong. 
right? But that's, that's not what Scripture would really teach. We see the children of Israel get saved out of Egypt and, and pass through the Red Sea. And passing through the Red Sea is a picture of water baptism for the life of the, of the believer. And immediately they have a wilderness experience, right? We also see Christ after he's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. It says that the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 4, immediately drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days, right? The Apostle Paul, before he, after he got saved, before he went up to see Peter at Jerusalem, the book of Galatians tells us that he spent three years in Arabia, in the wilderness. We see King David running from Saul for 10 years in the wilderness before he came, became king of Israel, right? And so we see a lot of leaders... And, and people in the Bible that before, they, before God used them mightily, they had a wilderness experience, right? And, and so that's normal. It's important to know as a believer that if we find ourselves in a wilderness experience, God has purpose in those wilderness experiences. God actually ordains wilderness times. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 tells us the purpose that God has for those wilderness times. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 5, he says, God, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness, and here's the purpose, to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And that's um, it's one of the scriptures that Christ used during his wilderness experience as he, as he answered back to the enemy, right? Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son... So the Lord your God chastens you. So God ordains these wilderness times, and He has purpose in those wilderness times. And the purpose is to grow us and to prepare us and to train us for the different works that He has prepared for us down the road, right? Uh, Another thing to understand about a wilderness experience is that it's not God's will for us to stay in the wilderness, right? God has an appointed day that that wilderness experience is supposed to end. And depending on how we handle the wilderness experience, it can last longer than it should. And what we're about to take a look at in Hebrews chapter 3 is that we can actually miss out on the promises of God depending on how we handle a wilderness experience. And it's sort of a sobering thing to think about, right? Turn to Hebrews chapter 3 and let's look at it. And we know that the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking to believers. He, he starts off the chapter in verse 1 addressing the people that he's writing to. He says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Right? And so that lets us know that the writer of this book is addressing Christians. 
And what he's about to do is give them a warning not to, not to be the same as the bad examples that died in the wilderness. Jump over to verse 16. He says, For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so what happened with the children of Israel in the wilderness? The Bible tells us that a whole generation died, died off. Their corpses fell in the wilderness, and they did not get to go in and inherit the promised land. They, they missed out on the promises of God. Plain and simple, they didn't believe God's promises. They didn't believe what He had spoken. They said things like, you brought us out into this wilderness to die, right? And a lot of times the enemy will put those same sort of thoughts in our minds, right? God will make promises to us and God will be doing a certain new thing in our lives and we'll have to go through a wilderness experience and we'll have thoughts fly into our minds like, well, it's probably not going to work out, right? I've probably done all of this for nothing. God probably doesn't see me. God probably doesn't hear me anymore, right? This is probably it. All hope is lost, right? My mind can go there really, really quick during, during, during lean times, right? And these are all attacks of the enemy, but, but what the warning is here is that when we, when we get those attitudes and when we have those doubts and when we have those um, attacks of the enemy, not to let those things fester, right? To, to bring those things to God, right? And to, to stay in our word, right? That those things wouldn't cause us to miss out on the promises of God. And so 1 Corinthians 10.11 confirms this same thing, that this exhortation is for us. It says, Now all these things happened to them, talking about the children of Israel, as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have have come, right? And so Paul being the, the writer of the book of 1 Corinthians is telling them, right, these Old Testament examples that you read about don't make the same mistakes that they made. Don't don't get into a wilderness time and lose heart because you can actually miss out on all of the stuff that God has for you. And so turn to the book of Joshua. That's sort of setting the stage of where the children of Israel are and, and the things that they've been going through up until where we're going to pick up the story in Joshua 1. So they've been delivered out of Egypt. They've spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. A whole generation has died off, all except for really two dudes, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb. They were the two spies. When Moses sent 12 spies into the land to spy it out, they were the only two that came back with a good report and said, yeah, we can actually go in there. God's on our side. It doesn't matter how big the giants are and the obstacles. We can go in there and take it. And so they're getting to go in now, and everybody else is gone. And so Joshua 1.1, it says, 
After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying... And so that first verse starts off saying the Hebrew words there in that first verse are actually, it's hayah ahar. And it's, and it's really, now it came to pass after, right? Meaning that the book of Joshua, again, is a continuation and it picks up right where the book of Deuteronomy left off. And the last thing that we see happening in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 34 is Moses goes up on Mount Nebo and he dies. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. Moses is not allowed to enter into the promised land. And there are a couple of reasons why Moses is not allowed to go in. Um, number one, that he made a mistake at the waters of Meribah Kadesh. So as the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came the first time to a place called Horeb. And they were complaining against God and complaining against Moses and saying, we're thirsty and you brought us out here to die in Egypt and we should go back to Egypt. And they just had really bad attitudes. And, and God told Moses, take the rod and strike the rock. Right? And water is going to come out. And so he did. And he struck the rock and water gushed out. And so then the children of Israel wander around in the wilderness for many more years and they come to this place called Kadesh and they're complaining against God again and complaining against Moses again and they're thirsty and Moses cries out to the Lord and the Lord says okay Moses take the rod and speak to the rock and Moses has been dealing with the the congregation of wilderness complainers for years and years and years and he is just burnt out and fed up and if you remember the story what he says he says here now you rebels Right? And he strikes the rock twice, and water gushes out. And so he loses his temper. And immediately God says, Moses, you don't get to go into the promised land, you and Aaron. You have not hallowed me before the children of Israel. And so that's one of the reasons that Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. And the reason, the reason that that was um, such a grave mistake is because 1 Corinthians 10 also tells us that that spiritual rock in the wilderness was a type of Christ, right? Paul says that that spiritual rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness was a type of Christ. And so when Moses struck it the first time, it didn't need to be struck again the second time. That was why it was so serious, because what that was a picture of is, is Christ needing to be struck again or needing to be crucified again. And we know that that's not true. Right, And so it painted a really, really bad picture of Christ. Christ does not have to be crucified over and over and over and over and over. Right? And that's a, that's a problem for, for a religion out there that, that practices the Mass and they practice the, the um, doctrine, I guess you would call it, of transubstantiation. Right, where the priest literally thinks that he's calling down Christ from heaven, and as he holds up the Eucharist and breaks it, he, he believes that he's breaking the, the literal body of Christ, and as they partake, they're eating the literal body of Christ. That's a problem, right? Because Christ, he, he was struck once. He was crucified once, and then on the cross, he declared it's finished, and so it's done. We shouldn't be doing that anymore, right? And so that's the first reason that Moses doesn't get to go in the second being is that Moses is a representation of God's law in the Old Testament, right? The law came through Moses, and so the law can never bring us in to the promised land. 
And so that's the second reason that Moses does not get to go into the promised land, because the law can never bring us as Christians into the promises of God, right? A legalistic religion does not enter, in, enter us into the promises of God. And then it mentions Joshua, right? So who is this Joshua? As I mentioned a, a minute ago, Joshua was one of the two spies that it came back with a good report. Um, his, his name was originally Hosea. We know from Numbers 13.8, but evidently Moses changes his name to Joshua in Numbers 13.16, which means Yahweh is salvation. The, the Hebrew word there is Yehoshua or um, Yeshua, and it's the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name Jesus. Right? And so Jesus is a type, Joshua is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament, is what we see. And in the same way that the, the children of Israel looked to Joshua as their, as their representative that would bring them into the promises of God and into the promised land, we as Christians today look at Jesus as that, represent, as that representative, as our, the captain of our salvation, if you will. And so we enter the promises of God in the name of Jesus, because we're washed in his blood, right? So Joshua is a, is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's important to note, too, that Joshua was Moses' assistant. And so Joshua, too, had his 40 years in the wilderness, being Moses' assistant and having a mentor and being trained up in the faith. And so he's another, he's another example of someone that God raised up as a, as a leader who had a wilderness experience, the difference being that, that he handled it well and he did what God had asked him to do. And so now he's getting to enter into those promises. Verse 2, the, the first thing that God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now imagine that, the... The book of Deuteronomy tells us that Joshua and the children of Israel had been mourning the death of Moses for 30 days. Deuteronomy 34.8. So imagine having been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, fighting these battles, dealing with a bunch of people. You're tired. You're worn out. You finally come to the edge of the promised land, and your leader dies, your mentor, your father in the faith, the guy that that you looked up to, the guy that we also know that, that Moses was the voice of God for Joshua. It says, the Bible tells us that God spoke to Moses face to face, and then Moses would go and speak to the people. And so no doubt Joshua looked to Moses to hear from God. And so now his, his, everything has just come cr crashing down, and they've been laying around mourning for 30 days, not knowing what to do. We've We've come all of this way. Now what's going to happen, right? And God speaks. And he speaks to Joshua. And the first thing that he does is say, Moses is dead. Think about that. We know that 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that, that God is the God of all comfort and mercies, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. And so God comforts Joshua after the death of his mentor and, and leader by just saying, look, Moses is dead. He doesn't sugarcoat it. 
He doesn't say, okay, sit down, Joshua, let's have a psychotherapy session, and let's, I'm going to ask you about all of your emotions, and we're going to replay the past 40 years, and we're going to go through every single event one by one by one by one. And as we go through every single event one by one, I'm going to ask you each time, well, how does that make you feel? And how does that make you feel? And we're going to process all of these things, right? God just says, look, the past is the past. Moses is dead, right? And it's not a cold, callous thing that he does there. Because sometimes when we go through things in life and we, and we have our time of mourning, I'm not saying that there, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a time of mourning the death of a loved one, right? But there comes a time where it's time to accept that the old thing is done, right? It's time to move forward, right? And I believe there's a principle here that can be applied not just to the death of a loved one, but any sort of expectation that we might have had where we didn't, where things didn't go how we wanted them to go, right? Maybe I didn't get the job that I wanted, or maybe I was expecting a certain person to behave in a certain way or, or to do a certain thing, and that person let me down, or maybe it's just a broken relationship, right? And I'm sitting around feeling sorry for myself and just being all resentful and letting that fester and I can't get it out of my mind, and I'm just stuck in it, right? And I've been mourning it for 30 days or 60 days or 30 years or, or what have you, right? What God would say to that issue is it's, it's time to move on. Let that issue be dead, right? Jesus himself would say, you put new wine into new wineskins. And so the book of Joshua, you can think about it as a book of new beginnings. But before God is going to have us enter into new seasons and enter into new promises and enter into new beginnings, if there are things in the past that we still feel resentful and, and bitter about, those things have to be dead, right? We have to be willing to let go of the old thing before God is going to bring us in to the new thing. Amen. So look what it says after that. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. So it's time, Joshua. Get up, Joshua. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Right? And so he says, arise. I've got, I can't have you laying around mourning the death anymore. I've got things for you to do. Now it's time to get up, right, and move on. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Notice there that, it, that it's past tense where he says, I have given you. And so with God dwelling outside of time, right, he already sees the victories that he's going to give us in our lives. God could already see the victory that he was going to give Joshua at Jericho. And God could already see the victory that he was going to give Joshua at Ai. He already saw all of those victories that he was going to give to Joshua. And in the same way, in the different things that we're going to face in life, as long as we're walking within God's calling for our life, he already sees those things as, I have given that to you. You're already victorious in that. And that's important to understand, right? God already sees the victories that he's going to give us in the works that he has prepared for us, right? He says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, meaning Joshua actually had to cross the Jordan 
And he had to put his foot there and lay claim to what God had promised to give the children of Israel. And I think it's unfortunate that, that there are a lot of um, people out there that would sort of make a mockery of, of claiming the promises of God, the, you know, the word of faith and the name it, claim it, and the, and the prosperity talkers, right? They, they make a mockery of, of laying claim to the, to the promises of God. And the way that they make a mockery of it is they lay claim to promises that God has not given to us, right? Notice God says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given it to you. But the, the very next verse that we're going to look at, he gives very precise boundaries to where Joshua is to tread upon, right? He doesn't say, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, now go conquer the world, Go claim private jets. Go claim new cars. Go claim the Powerball next week. right? And so in the same way, whenever we claim the promises of God, there are boundaries and there are borders to the promises of God in our lives. And we find those boundaries and those borders in God's Word. right? And so that's, that's important. We can't, we can't, as Christians, just because some people have made a mockery of of laying claim to the promises of God and name it and claim it and all of that. We can't feel guilty and ashamed to, to claim the promises of God just because other people have made a mockery of it, right? If God has, has made promises to you or I in His Word or individually, then, then we have to be willing to go in there and put our foot on that promise and claim it in the name of Jesus, right? And we, and we can't feel doubtful or hesitant about doing that. Check out verse 4. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. And so again, he gives, he gives Joshua very precise boundaries. And it was a, it's also important to note that it was, a, it was a literal land that he was giving the nation of Israel, right? And I looked up some maps of that of that land that he gave to him when I was studying. And it's mind-blowing how big it is. It's, it's a pretty big chunk of, of present-day Egypt. It's a pretty big chunk of present-day Saudi Arabia. It's all of um, Jordan. It's a huge chunk of Iraq. It's pretty much all of Syria and a little piece of Turkey over there. I mean, it is a big chunk of land. And you think about the nation of Israel today, right? It's this tiny little sliver over there in the Middle East, and people are telling them that they shouldn't have a portion within that tiny little sliver. And if you want to go by what God says that they should have, then you have a lot of nations that, that need to get out of Israel's land, right? Like you, you have Iraq that needs to get out of Israel's land. You have Jordan that needs to depart from Israel's land. It's a big chunk of territory. And from, from what I can understand in my studies, they never did obtain all that God had promised them. Right? They, they never did fully believe in the promises of God and go and take everything that God said that he had given them. Verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And so the reason that no man is going is to be able to stand against Joshua is not because of Joshua's might, but because his God is the Almighty Amen. and will be with him. You see, you guys see that? 
He's not saying, Joshua, no man is going to be able to stand before you because you're so great and because you're so mighty and because you're so awesome. He's saying, because I'm going to be with you. That's the reason that no man's going to be able to stand against you. He says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And Christ makes that same promise to us. Matthew 28, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans, right? He's given us the, the spirit of truth. He's given us the, the helper, right? We have Christ with us always. And so what we can take from this is, if I'm walking or if you are walking in God's calling for your life, in God's commission for your life, there's not a person or a group of people that can stop you. Does that make sense? There's not a person or a group of people that can stop you from walking in God's calling for your life because Jesus is with you. Right? And so that's important to understand because it's easy to make excuses like, well, I was, you know, I was going to serve and you know, do that one ministry, but then this you know, person you know, did this or did that and messed everything up, or I was going to you know, get that one job, but then this person messed it all up for me. right? And it's easy to make excuses like that and say, well, somebody else you know, messed everything up. Right? But what God is saying here is, if you're walking in my will, then, then people aren't going to be able to stop you from walking in my commission for you. Check out verse 6. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And so the first thing that we notice there in verse 6 is that Joshua did have weaknesses. God's encouragement to be strong and courageous reveals that Joshua had fear. God, God wouldn't have told him to be strong and courageous if Joshua didn't have fear. We also know from Deuteronomy 31, when Moses called Joshua, he told him the same thing. Listen, Joshua, you're going to have to be very courageous and strong. And so it was probably evident that, that Joshua, being the, the good warrior and the mighty warrior that he was, struggled with some fear, right? And so God is encouraging him, be strong and of good courage. And then what we see is, is God actually gives Joshua his specific calling, his specific commission. He says, For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to give, swore to their fathers to give them. And so that's Joshua's individual specific calling. And we, we know from Scripture that God has individual callings for all of our lives. So within the callings that God has for our lives, there's, there are really two types of callings. There's a general calling that all believers have, right? Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that. And then there's also individual callings and individual gifts that God gives each one of us to walk in the individual calling that He has for each one of our lives. And it's important to understand that, right? Because it's important for me as a believer and as one who, who follows the Lord to be seeking the Lord and to be praying about, Lord, what are my gifts? What, what, what is your calling for my life? Right? Because until we, until we get into that calling and, and the purpose that God has for our lives, we'll never have that true meaning and that true fulfillment and have that true satisfaction that God has called us to in Him. Right? And so it's important to understand that, that God had a specific calling for Joshua and that God has, a, has an individual and a specific calling for each one of us. 
in our lives, and we are to be growing in those gifts. Verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And so at this time, the children of Israel were under God's law, weren't they? He says, observe to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. We are no longer under the law because Jesus, we know, has fulfilled God's law on our behalf. Galatians three twenty three through 25 tells us, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. However, we do have New Testament commandments that God has given us, right? And so the book of James would say, be doers of God's word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, right? And Jesus would say in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments, Right? And so God, God does expect us to observe to do all that He has given us. Right? And if we're not doers of God's Word, then we're not going to be prosperous in God's calling for our lives. And really, you can think of Joshua 1, 1 through 9 as God's commission to Joshua and God's recipe for Joshua being prosperous in that commission. Right? And what we're seeing here is, is the first thing is to be strong and very courageous and then observe to do everything that, that, that I've commanded you to do, God would say. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do, there it is again, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Notice there at the beginning of that verse how he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. And so he doesn't tell him, bring another, you know, go find your own book, which is interesting to think about, right? A lot of the different um, false religions and, and cults out there and different organizations, they all have, they all seem to have a book, right, that they would promote and tell you, well, if you just read our book, then you'll be prosperous, and then you'll be successful, right? And what God is telling Joshua is, this book shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. And he, and he makes a promise there. If you, if you stay in my word, and if you meditate in it day and night, and if you do the things that are in it, you're going to be prosperous in the calling and the commission that I have for you. It's, amazing. it's an amazing promise, right? Because we can ask ourselves, what has God called me to do? What has God commanded me to do? Right? What's God's calling for my life? And God would say, if you stay in my word and do the things in my word, you don't need another book, and you're going to be prosperous in that thing that I've called you to do. It's a done deal. It's an amazing promise. And then look in verse 9. He says, Have I not commanded you? And that's, it's an important question, I believe, 
for all of us to answer, really. It's, it's sort of a rhetorical question that God is asking Joshua here. He's just given him this commission. He's just told him everything that he's supposed to do, right? And, and then he asks him, have I not commanded you? And so we can all ask ourselves, what's God been nudging me to do? What's that thing that he's, that he's commanded me to do? What's that ministry that he's asked me to participate in, right? And if God has commanded it, then that settles it. And if I'm not participating and if I'm not walking in it, then, then there's a problem, right? Because God has commanded it. And he says, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so if we're walking in the calling of God and in the commission of God for our lives, knowing that God is with us and knowing that God is not going to forsake us, that is our strength and that is our courage. Right? There's nothing to fear. that No man can stop us. The enemy can't stop us. Right? The, Satan himself can't actually stop you and I when we're walking in the works of God. Did you know that? The enemy can't actually stop us. So how does the enemy try to stop us? Getting us fearful, number one. Look how God keeps telling Joshua, be strong and of good courage. So the enemy will try to get us fearful. He'll try to get us discouraged. He'll try to get us distracted to turn to the left or to the right to go after other things, right? Ultimately, the the device or the tactic of the enemy is to get us to quit, right? He can't actually stop you or me, but what he can do is just make you quit. He can get you fearful and discouraged or distracted to the point where you say, you know what, it's just not worth it. God's promises sound good, and I've seen other people inherit God's promises, and I've seen other people walking in the abundant life that Jesus promises, but it's just too hard, right? Those are fiery darts from the wicked one. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the fiery darts of the wicked one. You ever ask yourself, what are those fiery darts? Their thoughts. That's what the fiery darts are, is their thoughts from the enemy. And the Bible gives, up, gives us a prescription to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So we're to know how to pray on the whole armor of God to be strengthened in the power of His might, to pray on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, right? And if we do these things and keep, keep our noses in our word and, and keep ourselves in prayer and encouraged, then we're going to be prosperous in God's commission for our lives. Yep. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just praise You and thank You for Your word to us tonight, God. And... Um, just offer ourselves to you, Lord, and ask that we would be those that enter into your promises and just experience everything that you have for us in this life. Lord, we want to be those that bear fruit for your kingdom. We want to be those that are willing to take steps of faith and just really to go for it, Lord, and to not be fearful or discouraged, knowing that you are with us, Lord, and that you have called us and that you have works for us to walk in. And so we just commit ourselves into your hands, Lord. I pray that you would give us all traveling mercies as we go home tonight, God. And I pray that you would bless 
all of us in, in our walk the rest of the week, Lord, and just use us as, as your servants, Lord. And so we love you and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.